0: Can you just say your full name and what you had for breakfast?
1: Uh, John Mervyn Maynard, a Warramai Aboriginal man from Port Stephens region of New South Wales. Uh, and I'm the chair of Aboriginal history at the University of Newcastle with the Wallatuker Institute. And I had for breakfast Uncle Toby's oats and a cup of tea. Delicious.
0: <laughs> Mervyn. <Yeah. laughs> Love After it. my
1: father. Yeah. Nice. Yeah.
0: John Maynard, who you just heard there works from an office in the University of Newcastle that is plastered with old flyers, posters and news reports about the history of Aboriginal political activism in this country. He's even got a lovely photo of his grandfather, activist Fred Maynard, who launched the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association in the 1920s. But I had gone to Professor Maynard to hear about a history that went back even further than that. I wanted to hear more about his reading, writing and thinking about Captain James Cook in the lead up to April 2020. That month marks 250 years since Cook arrived in the Pacific, triggering British colonisation of the region. We've got a whole suite of stories by researchers reflecting on that event in 1770 and how it still shapes us today, all on our site. Just search for The Conversation and Cook 250. And by the way, don't miss a really amazing scroll-through interactive that my colleague Wes Mountain has put together. But today on Trust Me, I'm an Expert, we're hearing more from Professor John Maynard, who started by telling us about some of the oral histories that have informed his writing and thinking on Captain Cook.
1: There's a multitude of oral memories, Aboriginal oral memories, right across the continent. Um, Deborah Bird-Rose, in particular, did a number of studies back in the 80s and and the 90s in Central Australia in the Kimberley and Arnhem Land in regards to memories. And Cook stories are everywhere. And Aboriginal people in those more remote locations are certainly under the impression that Cook came there as well. And he was raping Aboriginal women and he was shooting people and it was the Cook-led invasion of Australia. So this is the sort of deep... Um, how can you say, impact of James Cook that spread across the country. And also in um, southeastern Australia, we need to recognise that oral memories have been re- retained and certainly the Ewan people um, on the south coast of Australia with Gooliger, or what Cook named Dromedary, um, and also with the Aura people um, in Sydney as well, at, um, where Cook touched down there. And certainly up in in Queensland where the Endeavour was beached after running aground on um, uh, the Great Barrier Reef. There are memories of Aboriginal people, their thoughts of the arrival of of the Endeavour and James Cook and and also memories on the North Coast. And I mean, in Aboriginal communities right across New South Wales um, and I guess in some sense it's um, we need a bogeyman And Cook is the perfect fit.
0: (laughs) I mean, you're talking here about people having community memories of Cook being in their land when, in fact, he wasn't there, but... So looms the figure of Cook over yeah. the history of this country.
1: Yeah, it's the, it's the spread of Cook knowledge, if you like, that spread across the continent. And as I said before, he sort of represents, became the bogeyman for Aboriginal Australia. Everything that happened afterwards, particularly after 1788, is leads back to James Cook. I mean, whether he deserves that um, that mantle than that tag, I mean, some people may well argue. But uh, the reality is, in an Aboriginal mindset, it is uh, it resonates very deeply that Cook is the individual we can look to as there lies the blame. It's James Cook who set foot ashore here and uh, and then claimed the entire east coast of Australia for the crown. So um, that is, as I said, the the point that resonates very strongly with Aboriginal people despite the fact that many of these communities of course never you know met or James Cook never even went there but the reality is, this message certainly spread widely across the continent. It's the aftermath. I mean, you know, even in Aboriginal communities back in the Protection and Welfare Board days, and, I mean, you know, a government car turns out and, you know, Aboriginal people would be running around screaming, looky, looky, here comes Cookie. You know, so it's it's Cook. So that's the thing, and I mean, um, I, I actually wrote about an uncle, sadly recently departed Uncle Ray Rose, who'd had a stroke, and he was in hospital, and someone said to Uncle Ray, you know, how do you feel? And he said, uh, he said, no good, no good, I'm, I'm Captain Cooked. <laughs> so, so, you know, that's, that's the level of that um, connection, I guess, that, um, that really, you know, connects with
0: us. In one of your essays, you mentioned this uh, UN oral memory on Mount Dromedary. Yeah. Can I even get you just to read the quote out? This is the right. quote that you included.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, it's Mount Dromedary is the name that uh, James Cook gave the mountain, because but to us or to UN people, it was Gulaga, And Mount Dromedary, that... That name can be seen as the first of the changes that come for our people. In those days, the British sailed along our coast and claimed it as though we did not exist. Cook's maps were very good, but they did not show our names for places. He didn't ask us. I mean, and this is a thing. I mean, Cook, wherever he went up the coast, he was giving names where names already existed. So this is an important point to consider. So, yeah, particularly with Mount um, with Dromedary, Dromedary, because it looked like a camp back for Cook and I mean there it was it was Gulaga a very spiritual place to the Yuan people yeah, and that this that, is a, a Yuan oral memory about um, um, Mount Dromedary as Cook named it um, and of course the, uh, the Yuan name was uh, Gulaga a very spiritual place.
0: So how else have these first encounters been recorded in perhaps song or um, jokes or other um, histories that you've come across?
1: There are there are lots of those stories and songs and memories of Cook, and I mean, and as I said, um, incorporated into local stories. I mean, um, Uncle Sandy Cameron, I mean, a North Coast Aboriginal man, he sung a song that was recorded back in the nineteen seventies about Cook, and he shouldn't have um, berthed the boat against the beach, and I mean, so this memory was obviously passed down. Cook didn't berth the boat on the north coast at all but the story again like those in central Australia or you know up in up in the Kimberley continued to be passed along and then passed down so and then was incorporated into local stories and songs.
0: What do you make of that? Well I think I think that's
1: an Aboriginal response too I mean um, I come through a school system of the 50s and 60s and we weren't in the history of that time period except as, you know, belonging to the Stone Age or a dying race, you know, that's, the, that's where we sat. Um, and it was all about discoverers and explorers and settlers and even a racehorse like Farlap and a cricketer like Don Bradman, but us Aboriginal people, not there. So we had this, how can you say, I mean, high exposure of the celebration of people and particularly probably cook is probably one of the most prominent and you see the statues everywhere of james cook and um, 50 years ago in 1970 i mean all the reenactments of of james cook and the real public celebrations of james cook i mean it was in your face so aboriginal people how what's how do we make sense of all of this is in the reality of our experience and it was a catastrophic impact and that's not to blame Cook for what came later. I mean, the reality is in the aftermath of 1788, I mean, Noel Butlin, as one in a 1983 study, estimated the Aboriginal population of this country, which he thought was much larger. You know, the number of thing, estimates, about 300,000 Butlin, thought the Aboriginal population population was more like a million. And yet he said that Four decades after the British arrival in 1788, somewhere between 60 to 90% of the Aboriginal population had been swept away, either by disease or by violence. So this is the incredible aftermath that Aboriginal people have to come to deal with and make sense of in regards to that. And all of these In Your Face Cook and many others, um, it's difficult to deal with, but we've got to make sense of it the best way we can.
0: The phrase that you used to describe the consequences this cataclysmic, yeah. which I thought was um, a really a really strong word. Yeah. You mentioned the celebrations, and you sort of, I can only imagine what it was like, you know, growing up in that era that you just described and seeing these celebrations. But do you think it's changing?
1: I actually think it is. I mean, I think we're we're in a, and I mean. Some members of government don't want to be shifted, but I think um, wider Australia is moving and wants to move towards a more balanced understanding. And I think there's a lot of people in this country today who are recognising that the richest cultural treasure the country possesses is 65,000 years of Aboriginal cultural connection and history to this continent. And that is unlike anywhere else in the world. I mean, that is something this country and this continent possesses the oldest living memory known to humankind and i mean no disrespect but 250 years is you know a drop in a lake you know so it's um there's a big difference and i think there is a move to recognize that rich cultural connection and that this makes this continent unique and i mean we've got the 250 years things and i mean look i you know i I want and I'm all in favour of a balanced understanding. And for me personally, I mean, you know, I have high regard for James Cook as a navigator, as a cartographer and certainly as an inspiring, you know, captain of his crews. He encouraged incredible loyalty of those that sailed with him on those three voyages. And I mean, so that has to be recognised. But against that, of course, I mean, is the reality that he was given those secret instructions uh, to, if he could, to find the great southern land. Well, he came to the south east of Australia, and his instructions were to, um, if he come across natives, it to, was to open up um, discussion and gain consent, and that um, might have been able to set up a couple of trading bases and. Um, but this is all about gaining consent and opening up discussion. And as we know, he sailed up the entire East Coast and there was no gaining any consent when he sailed onto Possession Island and planted that flag down. Totally the opposite. There was no consent. And the, the most um, insightful you know, uh, viewpoint is Cook himself, who said that all they seemed to want from us was to be gone. And I mean, also when they went ashore at Botany Bay, I um, mean, two Aboriginal men came down and brandished spears and made it quite clear they didn't want them there. And I mean, of course, um, you know, those men were wounded and Cook was one of those firing a, a musket. So, I mean, that's the reality. And Cook himself has noted that in his diary, his journal, um, that... Aboriginal people opposed that landing and certainly all the way up the coast and and, uh, observing Aboriginal people, they didn't want them here.
0: You mentioned those those secret instructions. So this voyage starts off as a scientific expedition commissioned by the Royal Society of London, but then the Navy finds out and they hand cook these secret instructions to go and find, as you say, this great South land. And this second page instructs Cook, and I'll just quote, with the consent of the natives to take possession of the convenient situations in the country in the name of the King of Great Britain. I mean, what do you think when you hear those words? I mean, could consent ever have been given?
1: Well, quite clearly, not. I mean, they didn't seek it either. I mean, so that's the, that's the reality. And if you take any notice of British law, it was totally disobeyed. So the planting of that flag is in effect against British law, because they didn't follow the instructions that were laid down by the Admiralty in regards to the British Crown.
0: Are there other incidents from this, you know, when 1770 happens and he's in he's in Botany Bay or from that period of being up and down the East Coast that sort of stick in your mind as events that we perhaps maybe need a better or a more nuanced understanding of? So, you know, you've mentioned this idea that you're entering somebody's land without permission and that is a real transgression. Mm. What about other incidents that occurred
1: I think, again, there's no better person than James Cook, I mean, in his words. And it is certainly my belief, James Cook wasn't your normal British naval officer of that time period. To get into such a position, you had to be born into the right family. You had to come from money. You had to come from privilege. James Cook was none of those things. He came from a poor family. His father was a labourer. And, I mean, so Cook got to where he was, certainly by skill, endeavour, and unquestionably a very smart man and brilliant at sea. But it's also from that background that he's able to offer insight And I think there's that incredible um, quotation of Cook's where he says they live in a tranquility undisturbed by the inequality of condition. They live in a warm and temperate climate. They have a good, wholesome air to breathe. Now, what Cook is seeing is looking back to Britain, where there is an incredible amount of inequality. You have to be born into the right family. You have to be born into privilege. You have to be born into money. And I mean, in Britain of that time, you're look at london it was filthy sewage pouring through the streets disease was rife sickness illness and as i said under privileged people everywhere so there was this situation and what does cook see he sees this incredible egalitarian society only for a short period of time but it makes an impact on him and he is able to offer such insight in coming ashore um, at, um, in Sydney, at, at um, Botany Bay, as he named it. I mean, they do take away spears and shields and materials and, um, you know, the, the, the wounding of Aboriginal men there. And further up the coast, of course, is the confrontation that happens up in Queensland after the Endeavour has, um, has gone aground and damaged on the Great Barrier Reef, where they um, put the ship ashore to repair. First off, there's amicable relationships with the, with the Murray people up there in regards to, to the British being there, and they are supported in that aspect. But when the Murray come aboard on the Endeavour and suddenly see an incredible profusion of turtles, I mean, they are their turtles, and they would quite happily share some of those turtles, but they say, we want a share of the turtles. Now, the British response to that is, you get none. They are our turtles. So they go off off the ship and set the grasses afloat, uh, grasses afire, and the idea is that they'll burn the British out and burn the, burn the ship and all on it. Of course, I mean, the ship is saved, and... Then there is sort of a peace settlement in regards to that. But it's this complete blindness to, to reciprocity that, you know, of Aboriginal society, there is a sharing. And if there's something there, you know, we give you that, you give us this. And that's, as I said, with an egalitarian society. So there is this reciprocity amongst Aboriginal people, which they didn't recognise.
0: I mean, by the time the Endeavour gets up to the coast, they start to put a bit more effort into things like writing down words, and that's famously where the word kangaroo comes from. Mm. Um, do you think their attitude had changed by the time they'd gotten up the coast a bit more?
1: Yeah, well, the, maybe you could say there was an effort to um, to write and record aspects of language. I, I have my doubts as to whether they got much of that right in any case. You know, you know kangaroo was one that is recorded as being um, noted... But you had uh, a number of other people on the on the endeavour besides Cook who were making observations of Aboriginal people, some in a more positive light and others in a very derogatory light. I mean, Banks was one who certainly um, went ashore, and of course we know that the impact of Joseph Banks as a botanist and when he went back to Britain, he's celebrated it elevated uh, worth in regards to what he had uncovered and what he had collected so um, banks's position um, certainly I mean he was from a wealthy family anyway but certainly was elevated after this cruise
0: can we just talk about banks for a second I mean I sort of feel like I was taught in school that he was sort of this kindly old man who liked flowers but in fact what I'm learning that he was a you know a very politically connected figure mm. and quite an important figure in the decision to Turn Australia into a site to send convicts. What do we need to know about banks to have a better understanding of who this guy was? Yeah,
1: well, certainly at the time when he when he came here with Cook, he wasn't an older man then; he was a younger man. And as I said, he came from privilege. He come from from money, and there was I think it was something like ten thousand pounds that he paid to ensure that he was on that ship with a whole retinue of support um, uh, to have him there and help with his collections. You know, I, I, unquestionably for Banks and those with him, it was like going into another world. I mean, the things, the, the plants and the animals and the observations of us in regards to that, you know, was staggering. And what Banks was able to record, and as I said, he certainly, from a privileged position, but was into an even more elevated position when he went back to Britain. And he certainly did influence decisions later to set up a penal settlement in what is today Sydney, Port Jackson. So uh, he was influential in that sense. His uh, comments and uh, what he'd written and what he said later did impact onto those decisions.
0: This is a big question, but we'll give it a go. So, as I said, You've described the consequences as cataclysmic. Can you just tell us in what way you know I'm sort of trying to draw a lineage here from this first encounter to I guess where we are today with indigenous incarceration rates, you know child removal rates, um the inequality, the health gap. you know what is the connection between this event that happened in seventeen seventy and where we are today? Mm.
1: Well, it continues. I mean, the the impact of, of 1770 on today, it has never eased in the respect of a, a collision of catastrophic proportions. And I've said before, I mean, you know, Butland is one who estimated the Aboriginal population only four decades falling from between 60 to 90% through violence and disease. And the whole impact from 1788 then of invasion, uh, dispossession, cultural destruction, occupation, um, onto assimilation, segregation, all of these things that come later, and exactly the point of where we are today The shocking statistics that, you know, the worst in the country on anything you want to measure, Aboriginal health, Aboriginal education, Aboriginal employment, Aboriginal housing, youth suicide, incarceration, everything you can measure, we have the worst stats. And as I said, that has been a continuation. And the reality of the failing of government to recognise what has happened in the past and actually do something about it in the present, to fix it for the future. And I mean, these are important things to, uh, to really heed. And we've, we've had decades and decades of government. We know what's best for you. The only people to listen to are Aboriginal people. And we've never been put in the position, you know, we've been raising our voices for a long time now as well, but people see that as a threat and not prepared to listen to what we see are the main issues and the main problems impacting onto our own communities. They've got to listen to us.
0: Do you think that an honest reckoning of the reality of Cook and a more balanced analysis of that event and what came after, how would that factor into reconciliation? Well, it's
1: a starting point. I'm not. It's not going to. It's not going to heal things overnight. But it's a starting point where we can in the future, join hands and walk together to a shared future, an equal future in the country and where we go from here. And I think that's probably the most critical point, as I said, to attain a balanced understanding of of the past. And that's where we can build on to go into the future. So
0: critical importance. A lot of your research has been about Aboriginal protest and I just wondered about that side of your research and the sort of cook stuff, because, you know, it seems to me that the protest is not a recent phenomenon, is it?
1: No, it's not. I mean, I would say, I mean, from those two Aboriginal men who came down to the beach brandishing spears, one wana, want you know, we want you gone. We've been raising our voice since they first stepped ashore. But certainly with my, um, my work on um, uh, Aboriginal political activism, particularly in the 20th century, my grandfather, of course, was a very prominent early Aboriginal activist. Fred Maynard, a Warramai man, was the leader of the AAPA, the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association. And I mean, to me, that is a continuation of Aboriginal people raising their voices, standing up and speaking out against what was happening to our people. In my grandfather's case, the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association was formed in 1924 in Sydney, and they are still today you know, largely missing or unrecognised in most people, you know, wider Australia, still believe that Aboriginal political activism began in the 1960s. Charlie Perkins and the Freedom Ride, the Gurindji walk-off at Wave Hill, you know, the 67 referendum and the Tend embassy. But it goes back. We had the 38 Day of Mourning protest in Sydney and back to the 20s, my grandfather's organisation, was a big, a big movement. Over 600 members, 13 branches, four sub-branches, um, held four conferences in Sydney, Kempsey, Grafton and Lismore during the 1920s. They fought a five-year, bitter five-year campaign against the Aborigines Protection Board, trying to, I mean, their, their, their platform at that time was a national land rights agenda. Didn't begin in the 60s. They were demanding enough land for each and every Aboriginal family in the country. Didn't begin recently, 50 years ago. They were demanding that the Protection Board The government's policy of removing Aboriginal kids from their families be stopped and those protection boards abolished and an all-Aboriginal board be put in motion to sit under the Commonwealth government. A voice. The Uluru Statement of the Heart. It's not recent. This is, this is people have got to recognise. Over 90 years ago, our people were asking for a place in federal parliament, a voice. They also demanded self-determination. The Whitlam government in the 70s is credited with starting self-determination. My grandfather's organisation in the first conference at St David's Church and Hall in Surrey Hills in April 1925 were front-page news in the Sydney newspapers aborigines demand self-determination aboriginal aspirations self-determination again it's quite clear none of this is recent going going on for over 90 years so these are the important things that people need to consider we've just heard that the, the whole process of the voice has been put back we've got another aboriginal body being set up and we've got another 12 months of discussions i mean The decision was made back in 2017. What are we buggerising around with doing it all again? You know, I mean, it's crazy. It is absolutely crazy. Let's just get it done and get on with it and then we can all move on to a better place.
0: Reading through your Captain Cooked essay, I'm interested in what you think about Cook as this contested symbol for um, non-Indigenous nationhood and Indigenous peoples who've suffered after colonisation. Some people in white Australia have made it clear that they're really keen on really protecting his legacy and, as you say, building up the mythology around him and building him up as a figure. I mean, why?
1: Again, I said, look, I've got no problem with white Australia, white or white Australia, you know, holding on to the Cook myth, if you like, and I mean and he deserves his place in history that that's unquestioned certainly from my perspective and i've said that an incredible navigator and cartographer and and leader of his crews but he did not discover australia and you know it's even possibly argued he didn't even discover the east coast i mean there are thoughts they've been around for many many decades going back to the late 50s that the Portuguese may well have been on the east coast of Australia. There are rough maps, but the thoughts are that the earlier maps were destroyed in the, the 1600s in the Great Lisbon Fire, so that possibly there were earlier voyages to the east coast. And we know that Tasman and Hartog and Dampier and Torres, there was a whole host of people that had been to this continent before James Cook. So he has to share the space with these others as well. And I think that's critically important. But as I said, I think it's important for wider, white Australia and even the country as a whole to recognise Cook as a, an extraordinary navigator.
0: Is there anything that I haven't asked or anything that you think is worth noting in this debate as yeah. things are starting to really ramp up? Yeah, there'll well, be, yeah, yeah. you know, lots of cook celebrations, lots of cook a discussion, critical mm-hmm. discussion, some less critical. So, you know, as that starts to ramp up and we start hearing more about it, what do you want people to sort of think about it as they're sort of engaging with this?
1: I just, again, I think we want a more balanced understanding and that um, we have a shared space here to recognise and, importantly... It's not just about the last 250 years, and there are many non-Indigenous people today who really want to celebrate, as I've said before, the 65,000 years of Aboriginal connection to this country. I mean, and certainly from our perspective, we've always been here. You know, and our, our people come out of the, create, the dream time of the creative ancestors and lived and kept the earth as it was on the very first day. That's probably an important sentiment to recognise with, you know, and I dare I say it, um global warming and uh, rising sea levels and rising temperatures and catastrophic storms, which some people continue to debate, are not happening. (laughs) But um, we did keep the earth as it was in the very first day. To ensure that it was passed to each surviving generation, I think we need to remember that.
0: Trust Me, I'm an Expert is a podcast from The Conversation. I'm Sunanda Cray. Special thanks to Professor John Maynard from the University of Newcastle for taking the time to talk to us. Our theme beats are by Uncle Ho from Elephant Tracks and we've used music in this episode from Daniel Birch from Free Music Archive. You can find a full list of credits and sign up to our daily newsletter all on our site at theconversation.com. I'll chat to you soon.